Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael Bromwich. I'm one of the organisers, or supposedly, and Al's another supposedly organiser. Uh, the person who does all the work is Becky over there. Um, so I shouldn't really claim to be the organiser. Uh, welcome. This is the 33rd London meeting of the Management Accounting Research Group. And the idea is straightforward. It is that we uh, have both uh, researchers telling us about leading-edge re leading research, hopefully in a way which is comprehensible to me and other people. And similarly, we have leading practitioners who tell us about leading-edge things uh, in practice. And the idea is really to get the two sets of people talking to each other. Um, what we find, what you'll find is that there is quite a lot of time for talking uh, amongst yourselves, networking I think, or whatever it's called this week, um, and that's deliberate. Uh, as you know, the British are generally rather reserved uh, here, you're allowed to talk to anybody who seems interesting about accounting, of course. Um, I have to make one or two, two announcements. Uh, one is that we do try to keep to time. We do try to keep to time. Um, you'll see that each of the sessions is an hour, but of course there's a quarter of an hour or so for questions. Uh, we realise we can't deal with all the questions, uh, but that's why we allow a lot of socialising. Um, and that's why the buffet dinner is a man not mandatory, but an uh, important part of the proceedings. It allows uh, a lot of networking. Um, I, my other job is, of course, to thank our sponsors, which I do in alphabetical order. SEMA <laughs> and ICAEW. They have been an amazing support to this group for, well, tens of years or more. And um, we look forward to going forward into the future with them. Um, I have to make some specific announcements. Uh, one is, please take off, make sure your mobile phone is not doing whatever mobile phones do. Um, the other one is that, um, a bit like the aeroplanes, I shall now point out the exits in case there's a fire. That is the major exit. There's an exit at the back and there's an exit there. I've done that. Is there anything else I need to say? Ah, oh, right. Um, the only other uh, uh, complication, if there is a complication, is that lunch is in uh, the old building uh, of LSE, which is, you, you come out of this, there'll be people in red shirts who can guide you about, but the, you come out of this building, you turn right, and the first main road, you turn left, and that's the old building, and you find your way to the fourth floor. Okay, I think that's all I really um, need to say. Uh, Oh yes, no, there's one other thing. Toilets. <laughs> the architect 
being rather impressive here, uh, decided that he would change things and he would have toilets on alternative floors. So basically what you've got is female toilets on one floor, male toilets on another floor. So those poor people who have been searching, found the female toilets and then searched around for the male ones are probably still wandering about somewhere. The easiest ones are, if you go out of, out of this bit here, just by the entrance, there's some stairs, and that's where uh, both sets of bathrooms are. Okay, uh, I think I've done everything. And so, if I may, uh, I'll introduce our first speakers. Um, you have a write-up of the speakers, so I don't intend to read that out. Um, I, but anyway, I, I'm grateful to Christine Gillen, who is a technical manager in the ICAW, and Robert Hodgkinson, who is executive director, technical, at the ICAW. I can't imagine what else there is there. You know, if you're in charge of technical, it must be everything. Okay, so if you would like to come up and start us off, however you wish to do it, thank you. Great to see how fascinated you are with the first slide, uh, and I hope it will only get better. Kirsten and I, Kirsten's over there, Kirsten and I are here today to um, excite you, so at least to make us feel good, whatever you say on the feedback forms, if you look excited, uh, we know we're being we'll be being successful. I want to excite you, um, whether you're an accountant in business or an accounting academic, uh, by talking about the need to think about uh, IT in everything that we do in accounting. And I mean, that should be fairly obvious, really, shouldn't it? I mean, accountancy is about information. Information technology is probably, therefore, pretty pervasively important. Simples. But we'll expand on the argument a bit more because you're looking a bit skeptical. Now, just before we embark on the argument, uh, a little bit about the, um, the order of play and what's going to happen. Um, I'm going to um, kick off by uh, talking about where I think we are at the moment in the dialogue between uh, accounting and IT, then set out a view of where we should be trying to get to and what sort of thinking we should embrace to get there and why there are real benefits in doing that. I'll then hand over to um, Kirsten, having me presented the skeleton of the argument, uh, for Kirsten to actually put some flesh on the bones and make it all credible, uh, by talking about some specific topics in IT. So we'll be looking at uh, ERP systems, uh, business analytics, and um, control and monitoring technology. Then I'll come back and um, 
anticipate some of the questions and objections and the yes but points that people might have uh, before proposing some uh, next steps, uh, some actions that we might want to take. But then you'll have a chance to ask some questions and I hope there'll be quite a bit of time to do that to um, express all the uh, scepticism, which is, a, I hope, a common feature of accountants uh, and academics, uh, but when you combine the two in accounting academics, hey, scepticism's um, just uh, so good. Uh, goes viral, really. So, that's the basic structure of what we're doing. And if that, isn't, if that wasn't enough to be thinking about and getting excited about, there are two other sort of subliminal themes you might want to be thinking about. Um, you might want to be spotting the uh, references to this uh, phrase in our title, a bigger picture, and you might be disappointed to find that most of the slides are actually pictures, so there'll be a lot of references to pictures. We like to be big picture people. Is it, is it something I said? Um, I said <laughs> oh, convinced already. Um, oh, very good. Um, and also there'll be, um, as there's got to be, when you've got a, when you've got a conference with such a grand and fantastic uh, title as this has, uh, you do want the uh, conference organisers to think that actually uh, some people are trying to live up to the, um, the aspiration in the title. So uh, I will assure you that we are really talking about some uh, global challenges and some local responses. So the first um, thing, as I promised to do, was a sort of where are we now part. Uh, now, I wouldn't want you to think that what I'm saying is where we are now in relation to technology is, um, is uh, the abacus, although how many people here have mastered that technology? Oh. Um, what hope have you got with an iPad then? Um, but there's a quite serious point here that actually uh, the accounting profession has actually really historically been leaders in information technology. And we don't need to go back a long way in history, I'll just go back to the 1960s, where, quote, two sources. First of all, there's, there's a splendid lecture that was delivered uh, back in 1963 by one of our, one of ICAW's uh, leading members in business, Stanley Harding. And if you read it now, you would have thought that it could have been written last year, delivered last year. And actually, his, the section in a lecture he gave at an ICW summer conference in 1963 about IT still reads very well. But just to show how at that time, and he was working uh, in Shell, uh, the accounting profession was kind of leading uh, in relation to IT. Um, he said that... Um, we have tackled all the obvious applications, that is to say payrolls, cost control, sales, statistics, invoicing, customers' accounts, stock and materials control. Uh, we've had some teething troubles, but uh, there's an increasing number of success stories that are beginning to come through. And that's just part of a very confident uh, section of his lecture on IT, where he actually identifies most of the issues that would still be seen as being current. Now, for those people outside the accounting profession as well, this um, idea that accountants were really the people who got this um, 
IT thing, although of course it was, it was probably called electronic data processing then, uh, is, was actually a source of some resentment for people outside the accounting profession. So here's a, here's a wonderful book, which um, uh, those people who remember those sort of pelican um, books that were kind of reason why you didn't have to go and dig out obscure articles in the library, and that was when I was at university in the late 70s. These great pelican books, and there's one here on computers, managers, and society by Michael Rose, who um, actually talks a little bit grudgingly about um, the great majority of self-announced integrated systems are in fact no more than integrated financial accounting systems. And he talks, he gives three reasons why uh, accountants have really managed this whole IT uh, business. Uh, it's, oh, we won't know the reasons. He's got an argument for why they'd naturally be in control. But big point is that they're people who have an idea of sort of structured data, uh, reliability of data, and they kind of get it first. So that's, that's something which makes us all feel uh, really good about how uh, the accounting profession's uh, been seen to have a leading role in this. But you might say, well, nearly 50 years later, have we moved on a lot? Have we kind of got beyond the insights uh, and sort of sense of leadership we had then? Well, of course, there are people who have great vision and wisdom who realize that the profession, our profession, should really be in a, a leadership role here. Who was it who said, financial control and management accounting activities as part of the digital economy are at a turning point facing the likelihood of extensive alterations? Who was it who said, the combination of extensive financial volatility, rapid technological change, and the impacts of the forces of globalization has produced a climate of extreme change and risk, but also brings opportunities for management and the management accounting field to act in innovative and thoughtful ways. Who was it who said those things? Well, it's particularly depressing when the people who wrote them are in the audience and don't recognize their, their words, but um, uh, actually both those things are written by, um, oh, Al and Michael. They're obviously too modest or, um, are going to get their ghostwriters under better control in the future, not to, not to set expectations which I said we would step up on stage to fulfil. But also, uh, there's something else which um, uh, can talk about, which is uh, Al's um, editorship of management accounting in the digital uh, economy. Uh, if anybody would like the references to the other works that they wrote, I'm sure um, they'd be happy to provide them. So, so far we've got historical position of leadership, now a little bit of questioning about whether there's ground to catch up, whether there are things to be thinking of. So the third part, of, and there's four aspects of where we are now, most things in this talk come in fours. Third thing is, well, maybe actually it's that scepticism slipping in a little bit, that maybe professional accountants and accounting academics don't get that enthused about IT because they've kind of seen the hype, they've heard it all before. There's a kind of gap, there's a gap between, in practice, between the promise of technology and what's delivered in practice, and also a gap in terms of the uh, aspirations of academics on both sides of the uh, divide to, um, to link together their work. So just some examples to justify that um, 
skepticism. Survey by Microsoft in 2008, survey of senior finance executives in the United States. Many organizations still wrestle with how to take a system of disparate sources and legacy systems, sometimes built with 20-year-old obscure computer languages or relying on manual feeds into a comprehensive database and improve processes to make them faster, smoother, and more streamlined. There's a similar kind of skepticism, um, realization of the gap between the aspiration and the reality in a, an IBM survey of CFOs where the biggest gap between uh, expectations and performance uh, was in the area of uh, driving integration of information across the enterprise. 61% thought they just weren't effective in doing that. And there's still um, quite a lot of difficulty of communication between IT specialists and accounting specialists. They use different language. They both have ideas that their ways of thinking should really uh, influence how the others think, and they really don't get it. Why can't IT people understand double-entry bookkeeping? Um, why are accounting people obsessed with it? And other basic sort of dialogue of the deaf issues. And in the accounting uh, academic sphere as well, there's a similar sort of sense of frustration. So in Marcus Granlund's survey of... Um, of where we were on the interface between accounting and modern IT. Uh, the study concludes that, uh, in general, we seem to have limited understanding of the direction and magnitude of the effects of IT on accounting and control, and vice versa. So that's the third aspect of where we are, a sense of dissatisfaction. But let me now just uh, raise a doubt as to whether actually things will just carry on like that. Um, so this is the fourth point in where we are at the moment, and it's addressing the idea that there's potentially a discontinuity here. And actually, that, that image is quite nice as an idea, uh, an image of discontinuity and then sudden change. You know, what they're doing is completely useless for most of the time, and then you've got a discontinuity. You kind of, you've got zero utility to kind of sudden change when you, when you bridge the two. And you could have lots of skeptics on both sides of the ravine saying, well, this is all a waste of time. I don't know what we're bothering with here. And then the people who carry on doing it and, and are ready to um, see the two coming together, they're ready. So, thinking about uh, discontinuity. Um, so we're probably all familiar with Moore's Law. This is, this is quite a nice graph which I'm told also plays to the idea of some an ancient Chinese myth that, um, oh, I probably won't get this right, but if there's an emperor and somebody who says, well actually give me a grain of rice um, for every square of the drafts board, but we'll double the number of grains of rice as we go around uh, the board. That's kind of fine for the first half of the draft board, and then suddenly you find that the guy will now be the emperor, and in fact he'll have to rule the world because that power of building up you know, the exponential growth is stunning, and maybe uh, we are on the brink of some stunning impacts, like bridging across that ravine. Just to give an example of how things can catch up on people, um, there was pretty confident assertion by real experts, the economist Frank 
Levy and Richard Murnane back in 2004 that um, driving was just something that could never be automated. It was just too complex. So that's after a few decades of development in computing power. And US states at the moment are legislating to enable the inevitability of driverless driving, if you can cope with that uh, oxymoron. Further details are available and requested, I think, in the bibliography. But these things, it's now possible. And suddenly you've got a complete change. You could envisage a time when actually people don't drive or they're kind of, it's just people who hanker after some um, old way of doing things. So we need to be a little bit careful about thinking, well, because uh, nothing's moved on for the 50 years since Stanley Harding was speaking in, uh, at an ICAW summer school, that's safe. It might just prove that we're closer to huge change than we think. And we can debate later whether actually that's true or we're going to be really sceptical, but it might be useful to be kind of ready and at least think it's, it's an eventuality we might want to be ready for. And underpinning all of this is just some basic economics um, which, uh, and I know I'm not an economist and there are plenty of more knowledgeable economists, but it's a simple thing that I think I learned about supply and demand curves. Um, there must be some idea that there are incremental costs of serving up information and that's about processing power and storage capability and retrieval and so on. And then there's some incremental benefits of, um, of using information. I don't know what the shape of those curves are, and we could debate what they are. But the importance goes back to a point about technology matters. Technology changes those supply and demand curves for information. And it doesn't, it, we can speculate about how it changes them, but it enables uh, marginal cost of information to come way down, the cost of retrieval to come way down, and it potentially also uh, enables the benefits that people can derive from information to uh, shoot up. And you only need to think of, these are just quite boring shifts in those curves, to look at the huge expansion in quantity of information and its useful information, and the kind of expansion in benefits of what it is that's under the um, the demand curve there if you have these sorts of shifts. So there is some economics underlying this which we probably need to be wary of. So that's where we are at the moment. Accountancy profession always been pretty, historically been pretty good at knowing what it's doing in relation to IT. Perhaps not a lot's happened in the last 50 years. Some really good visionaries in the audience say we really need to watch this, things could change. Third stage, actually there is the um, uh, problem we've got a lot of experience of things not making for radical change but there is that possibility that we'd be on the verge of real radical change. So my kind of um, solution to all of this would be to say that we kind of need to be ready. We need to make sure that um, we build a real understanding of how finance functions uh, incorporate uh, IT into their processes, uh, how notions of uh, control and decision making might 
be capable of being radically changed. And we also recognize that in, in order to build this better understanding of the relationship between IT and accounting, we're going to have to embark on some quite um, imaginative collaborative efforts and bring together uh, a lot of people from different uh, disciplines to help us. So let me now just uh, go through uh, some things we might to bear in mind as we think about this, um, this journey to where we want to get to. We want to get to being ready and having better understanding. I'll put forward again four thoughts about what might help us to be ready. Four thoughts to have in mind. First of all, I've drawn some work that we did in a, oh, a fading book there um, called uh, Measuring uh, IT Returns. Uh, just in case you hanker after that, um, um, we have some of our material available in the, um, in the cloth bags that you all collected when you registered, but all this material is available for download uh, from our website. Um, meanwhile, back in what that report said, made the, started off in looking at how you evaluate investment decisions in IT. We're making a very basic point that actually not only is uh, information central to what accountants do, it's actually pretty central to why businesses exist. So you've got to expect that, you know, if we're talking about accountants in business, the businesses they're accounting for are fundamentally changed by information because it's the heart of what creates uh, businesses. And that's all back to the economics of the theory of the firm, you know, it's transaction costs and it's the efficiencies that come and lots of other theories in the theory of the firm about why firms exist, but a lot of it's about information. So you've got to expect IT will have a big impact on business models that work and don't work. And we particularly looked um, in this report, and this is a, a way of depicting business model, which is basically about delivering value, value exchanges between businesses and people outside businesses, but saying that a large part of the value which people, uh, the businesses deliver to their counterparties, their stakeholders, is actually in the form of information. And that's not just if we're talking about information services, we can spot that, that if it's a business that provides information, Thomas and Roy says, I can understand that's an information service, an information business, but ordinary other businesses. Because what they have and what they deploy is information about what customers and others value they have to do that so that they can deliver the right things to them that they want. That's based on information and knowledge. They also coordinate information to manage transactions, to manage the interaction between the business and those counterparties. And they also have a sort of collective knowledge and accumulated knowledge, a corporate knowledge which somewhere has to be stored and shared. So information is right at the heart of business. So whatever it is that accountants are doing in business, they need to understand that basic connection. And it's because accountants are used to being masters of one particular sort of information, doesn't mean that they can't bring great benefits as they spread their knowledge. Now to put some flesh onto that, second point, oh, there's another fading um, cover. This is um, something that's, oh, I think, Rick's, um, Rick's there and Philip Smith's also here. Um, Rick and 
Philip uh, presented here, I think, a couple of years ago on some work that ICAW was doing around the finance function. This is now published. We're very grateful for all the input you gave on the day. Uh, it now looks a little bit prettier. But what we essentially do in this framework is look at how finance activities are organised within businesses into a finance function and the role that accountants uh, play in the um, organisation of finance activities. You can't quite see it there, but those little red arrows between those activities are information flows. Because what we do is look at these activities involved in finance functions. So there's accounting, but also it's linkages to management and control, compliance, funding, strategy and risk, those five core areas of activity. And the kind of power of the accounting function um, is finance functions sorry, is going to be based upon those information flows. So information is central to uh, what accountants do in business. And so we also need to bear in mind that any study of the relationship between accounting and IT is going to recognise that those information flows that uh, start off in accounting that support those other functions are going to make this of great relevance. The third area to look at. And again, these are, I'm sorry for showing off our um, uh, library of works here, uh, but what you can do is, if the academics are frustrated by this, um, just go and look at the bibliographies, uh, because we haven't just made these uh, works up. You will find there are fantastic bibliographies, so there's at least um, all 50 uh, academic articles referenced in each of those. So it's, uh, it, you know, stay behind us here, because the work we do here is drawing on um, uh, academic work, but what we are trying to do is stand back from it and perhaps see how they fit into a bigger picture. And what we did in this report on trust in IT is say that there's a, there's a potential gap between the technological possibilities of what IT can do and how it's actually implemented. And a lot of those barriers to implementation will come down to the fact that they, IT really challenges some basic issues around conceptions of privacy and personal information, what intellectual property is. And so there are wider sociological and ethical issues to deal with. And finally, the fourth element to be aware of is this can all be quite good fun. That actually, if we're thinking about the possibilities of IT changing accounting, it can be quite good fun. And I'd cite in uh, support here uh, David Hockney. So here we are um, with, I think he's septuagenarian, celebrated artist, absolutely at the top of his profession. But have you seen the sheer excitement with which he uses his iPhone and his iPad to create pictures with a productivity and an intensity and a speed which would have been inconceivable? So look at, look at that. I think this could actually be quite fun because we are, if we're on the edge of some transformational change, that could be really exciting in terms of what it means that accountants can do. So it's at, at this point uh, where we've got the idea of what's um, possible and I hope the benefits are obvious. It will be excitement but it will also be a real expansion of the accounting discipline to um, be excited by the technological possibilities. I'll pass on to um, Kirsten, who will talk about some real IT.
Thank you, Robert, and good morning to everyone. Um, as Robert said at the beginning, I'm now going to build on some of the ideas Robert outlined and look at it in a bit more detail in the context of three areas of technology. And I'm going to talk about the promise, the imagination, what could these things do? I'm then going to reflect on what we actually know the impact's been, what some of the barriers might have been to an impact, and then I'm going to look at what would be useful to know in order to perhaps help our the using of these technologies going forward. And in the process, I'm going to draw on a wide variety of academic literature, both from accounting and from information systems, which is my area. And I'm also going to draw on a variety of anecdotes from the more popular media, as well as some conversations we have had with members in order to ground some of the possibility and what we know from academic knowledge and what we actually see in practice. So the first area I'm going to talk about is ERP systems, or Enterprise Resource Planning Systems, to give them their full name. Now this is not exactly a leading edge new technology. ERPs um, first appeared in the 1990s and became popular as um, organisations looked to manage concerns around year 2000, and also to um, uh, replace old complicated legacy systems more broadly. Because, of course, business had, con had computerised accounting and other business tasks long before ERP. The innovation of ERP was it moved all these disparate databases into a single integrated database where all the data could be all the transactions could be processed in one go. And it was this idea and the novelty of this single database which, which is what gave real excitement and the promise of what ERPs could deliver and how they could possibly change finance functions. So, by having all this data in one place available to everyone, one, you could really decentralise decision making and control structures. Likewise, you could actually centralise it because suddenly everyone in the centre could see what was going on throughout the organisation. So there was great enthusiasm about the impact that these systems could have. Um, there was also a thought that you would free up a lot of time within finance functions because you wouldn't need to do the same degree of uh, reconciliation and basic reporting and transaction management and you would have the opportunity to spend more time on higher, sort of more value-adding tasks like decision support. So that was the promise. I think the reality, as we know, is possibly not quite the same. What have we actually seen in practice? Well, the IBM surveys, which compare the amount of time that finance functions spend on different tasks, show that actually there's been remarkably little change in the past 10 years, from 2003 to 2010. That's only a 2% change, which is within the margin of error. So this idea it was going to free up time and really be some transformational force um, from what we can see hasn't been translated into practice. Obviously, there may be lots of reasons for that. Maybe the quality of decision support is better, but it certainly hasn't seemed to actually lead to some great shift in what finance functions do and how they spend their time. And I think this has been supported by academic literature. Here's a quote from a study back in 2002 saying they could see really no direct or indirect impact of ERP systems. And I think at a broad level that probably remains the case. But certainly when we get into the detail, we can see a lot of very interesting changes when we look at individual organisations and the way that they have actually implemented ERP systems and the way they ha we have seen the evolution of roles and practices on the back of that. So just to cite a few case studies we've looked at, some, some well-known ones, Calio back in 2003 took this idea of information throughout the organisation and how you would lead to what, the, what was termed a hybrid accountant, the hybridisation and the merging of boundaries and hierarchies. 
Quaternion Hopper in 2005 looked at management control systems and how they could change as part of an ERP implementation. Well, they compared two organizations, one which didn't make any changes and then one which actually tried to centralize their control systems as part of their ERP project. Unsurprisingly, the second project was slightly more problematic, but who knows, maybe the long-term benefit was greater, we don't know. And in a more recent article in 2011, Wagner et al. Um, described how an ERP system evolved once it had been implemented when it was felt that it didn't really meet the needs of the, of the users and it evolved and the practice evolved over time to try and make it more suitable. And just for information, we've got all these references in our notes in the pack, so um, they are all properly referenced if you want to look at them in more detail. But probably the, the single most common lesson that we get from all of this literature, and there is a, a rich literature around ERP systems, is that so much is about, or is, is about so much more than the technology. The technology's there, and that's fine, and that's an important aspect of it, but it's about so much more. It's about how that gets integrated into the organization and how organizations actually use it. And this fits in very much with broad information systems thinking, which is increasingly focused on the local context and the organizational resources you need to make the technology work. I mean, Nick Carr argued back in 2002 that IT was a utility. It was like electricity. You simply bought hardware, software, everyone bought the same stuff, you implemented it and it just worked and we ended up with you know, everyone using the same stuff. You couldn't possibly get competitive advantage, you just had to use it in order to operate. And I think over time we've seen that's not the case. Obviously organisations can get tremendous advantage and they can also destroy tremendous value if they do it wrong. So there's so much more to it than just the technology components. And I think the ERP case studies bring a lot of really interesting lessons about how Organizations in many cases are all implementing exactly the same system, which is an SAP system, but the, the local result is very, very different, which goes back to the theme of the conference, that we have these fantastic global opportunities and ideas, but actually the local context and how you integrate that in is so incredibly important. So what else can we learn about ERPs? Well, although there's a lot of literature, I think there's a lot of scope for more literature. I think understanding the logic and the functionality is important, and then understanding how that interacts with the people and the organizational side. I think there are also very interesting questions around shadow systems. I mean, finance functions still seem very wedded to spreadsheets, and really getting an understanding of how those all actually work together um, is, is an interesting question which might help us understand how we can make better use of some of these main systems in practice. So I'm now going to move on to business analytics and I think this slide shows some of the madness of the area of reporting and analytics because on the one hand you can look at it and go what a fantastic array of information and on the other hand you just think what on earth is all of that actually telling me it's just meaningless data. And I think it's, it's obvious that, as Robert said, if we apply IT to information and we get more information and faster information and more aggregated, more broken down, more comparable, we should be able to get information that helps us make better decisions. That seems fairly obvious. But again, as we know in practice, going from executive information systems to business intelligence to data warehouses, I mean, there's been a whole host of these types of tools and techniques which often haven't really delivered on that, pra on that promise in practice. So the question is now with business analytics, which is the new term we see, is there anything different? And I think there are some things that might be different. It's very difficult to tell, you know, and, and to get behind some of the hype, but there are some differences. I think 
I mean, there's no doubt that the amount of data that's available to organisations is, is just increasing vastly. I've got here the picture of a library, and if you think about how long it takes to build up a physical collection of books and compare that to the digital world, I mean, IDCs and technology analysts said that in um, 2011, the amount of data created in one year was 1.8 trillion terabytes, which in itself is maybe a meaningless number, but that has increased ninefold in the last five years and they anticipate it's going to increase another 20 times by 2020. So there's a huge amount of big data as, as the, the jargon goes. And what's driving it is not ERP systems or transactions. I mean, sure, the internet's in there, but a lot of this is about mobile and it's about chips being embedded in everything from Oyster cards to cars and everything around us, which is just generating vast amounts of information around what we're doing, where we are, and the state and location of physical assets. And alongside this massive amount of data, we are seeing these improvements in processing power, which is enabling people to try and harness this data and try and get some insight from it. As Robert said, the driverless car and trying to find patterns out of this mass of data. I mean, this has certainly been led by internet companies without doubt, but we are seeing this gradually move into other areas of business. So IBM's Watson computer made headlines last year where it was, um, where it absolutely thrashed every human competitor on the Jeopardy game show. With the intelligence and the context and the way it was able to understand the questions and respond was seen to be very sophisticated. Again, patent recognition. And that kind of technology is being harnessed within businesses, particularly in healthcare sectors to improve diagnostics, and also within financial services to improve customer engagement and to improve risk management. And so it's important to see this is not just about reporting what happened in the past. This is about mining vast amounts of data to find patterns and then use those to predict how people are going to behave in the future and then use that insight to manage and make decisions. So it is, I think, different. And I, there, there is some real power in what's going on there. In terms of our learning in this area, I find a quote from a, a literature review in information systems, which is fairly negative, but we did scan a lot of literature and we did struggle to find much that really linked some of these ideas into business. There's a lot of stuff around algorithms and technology and architecture and data models and stuff like that. But how you actually use that within a business context, I think we really couldn't find anything. But again, the one, one of the key lessons that Shanks and colleagues came up with was how important the local context was. The greatest value was from these kinds of systems was when you looked at it in a local context, it was usually unpredicted and unplanned, and it was a result of really local entrepreneurial actions. So again, the context is key. And this came out with the conversations we had with two different internet businesses. Now, you would expect all internet businesses, their, their information driven that's the whole business is about information and you would expect them to be at the leading edge of using information to make decisions and certainly one organization we spoke to were very focused very committed to data it was it ruled the organization um, from the CEO downwards everyone was numerate everyone had data skills and it supported every decision and the finance function were very supportive they played a you know they were a small function but they played then a key role in providing expertise and arbitrating when there were disputes and they were able to make use of a lot of internet and customer data in predicting um, new products and making, making investment decisions. If you contrast that with another organisation we saw, 
where the, it was much more driven by a sales and marketing um, focus, the data, as far as the finance function was concerned, was really of a very poor quality. Um, and they spent a huge amount of time doing adjustments, reconciliations, trying to make it of a quality that could then be used in decisions. So really, they weren't able to harness the power of all of this data they had. So what, what else would be useful to know? Well, I mean, there's a lot of stuff I think that would be useful to know to help an organization get that little bit of insight from this massive data. But of course, it's about more than just process and organization. It's about us absorbing information and improving our decisions. Um, there are obviously long-established questions around the role of gender or culture around how we make decisions. I think there are growing questions around the role of different generations and how they absorb information and may make decisions. Um, there are important questions around information overload because, hey, if we think this is bad now, it's only going to get an awful lot worse as we have more and more information. And also with things like smartphones and tablets and really having information literally at your fingertips, does that actually improve decision making? Are we just encouraging overreaction and, um, or actually is this a useful way of improving decision making? So I think, again, lots to learn and lots of interesting areas to think about. And the final area I'm going to talk about is surveillance and the link into management control systems. And again, we're coming from a history of, you know, a long history of employee surveillance. But again, new technologies are providing all kinds of opportunities for employers to track and see what employees are doing all of the time, from GPS systems on vehicles, chips at office building cards, email, all that stuff. And also to things like CCTV. So employers are actually having direct you know, images. They're not just having coded or reports. They're actually having direct images and information in its raw and original form. And we have seen a number of examples of these kinds of technologies being used in, control, in the control environment. So there's quite widespread use of anti-fraud software, for example, which uses these pattern recognition techniques in order to try and identify people who might be engaging in um, fraudulent activity and the use of certain key phrases in, in emails, such as, let's take this offline, is apparently an indicator there could be some illicit activity going on. So all kinds of things like that. There's also more sophisticated um, prevention of prescribed behaviours. There's a great report from the BBC last year of a Japanese train company that was using CCTV images to monitor customer service. And they were actually measuring the curvature of the smiles of the guards against what they wanted. And if the smile wasn't sufficiently broad, the guard was, you know, hauled in to be told to be jollier and a bit less um, miserable, which I think is a great idea we should incorporate in our trains immediately. But on the flip side, we've got technologies, these are technologies that enable the organization to look out and see what the employees are doing. There are also a whole lot of technologies and trends enabling customers and stakeholders and everyone outside the organization to look in on the organization. Um, so ideas around transparency, open data, XBRL, all the information intermediary sites or blogging sites, which all provide alternative ways to look at the information and look at the organization and judge what the business is doing. So what do we know? Again, research here can clearly build on all kinds of established um, concepts around control and surveillance. But the digital environment does supercharge it, if you like. You suddenly have access to information about everything employees are doing almost at any point in time. And what does that mean? What are the boundaries? How does that impact on behavior? 
and the journal Accounting Organisation and Society published um, two very interesting articles last year in this general space, one which looked at the employer um, surveying the employee, and they looked at a knowledge management system. But what they came up with was actually... By having a knowledge management system and people published all their deliverables and so suddenly you were moved from a system of a central controlling figure to the fact that suddenly everyone could see what everyone else was doing. You had all of these horizontal controls going on and people monitoring and being monitored at the same time. Um, and you ended up with all kinds of new behaviours around showing off and being secretive and trying to keep things out of the system as what people worked out how they could game this. But equally what's interesting is it was a knowledge management system which isn't a surveillance system at all. It's a system to help you build knowledge and improve quality and improve productivity. But the digital trail that was created enabled this kind of surveillance opportunity. There's a really interesting article on how it changed um, some of the control ideas. There was another article on TripAdvisor as well, which looked at, obviously, a very influential information intermediary in the travel industry and how it had built up its trust and reputation so that people really used it in, a, in, a, in, in the way they did. And it looked at the role of ranking and calculative practices. But it also, it also brought up this idea of what is expertise and are we moving beyond the idea of a single subject matter expert? Because... We're not, you know, when we use TripAdvisor, we're saying we don't want the view of an expert and a travel writer who's done this all, the, all their life. What we want is the views of people who've actually been there and done it. So it, the role of the non-expert um, raises all kinds of interesting questions, and they looked at how that might impact on the profession. So again, you know, an interesting article on how we might try and extend some of our thinking in this way. So what would it be useful to know? Well, again, lots of things. Lawrence Lessig is a very well-known scholar in intellectual property rights in the digital world, and he is a great believer in openness. He was the founder of Creative Commons licenses and believes in information sharing. But he has raised all kinds of concerns around this, what he calls rush to naked transparency, of just getting all this information out there and seeing what everyone is doing all of the time. And he compared it, certainly in the public sector, just, he said it's going to just push off faith in the political system off a cliff edge because it has so many implications around behaviour and how we react if we know we're going to be monitored all the time and also what people are going to do with this information with all different kinds of agendas and using information out of context and how do we build useful mechanisms so this information can actually you know, inform people on things. And there are also massive issues around trust and privacy. If we're talking about employee surveillance where are the boundaries? If I have a mobile phone that I'm using at home, I'm using at work, what are the boundaries? What, what is the private space we're talking about for the employee? I mean, certainly that may be granted in human rights, but there are tremendously important business benefits of having a private space, enabling people to you know, innovate and come up with ideas, and having that space, they can do that, so they're not going to be ridiculed and not worried about things. So we need to really think about what some of the consequences of this are and where the new boundaries may lie and how we might want to redefine what we mean by privacy. So I think ERP systems, business analytics, control, I mean, they're fairly well established within a finance function. Um, to move on to David Hockney and to be a bit more imaginative, um, there are obviously a myriad of technologies and things that could impact on the finance function, and we've only picked three ones, which I said I think are fairly conservative and within the, within the organisation. There are, uh, just to 
pick one or two other examples that may be a bit more left field, we've got things like prediction markets. And prediction markets, the technology is, 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 is enabling an organisation to bring together the views and the collective knowledge of the employees and move away again from this idea of a line manager being the expert and being the gatekeeper of information. So prediction markets enable employees to buy and sell shares in predictions of the future on the basis that actually if they get benefit when they're right, they're actually going to be quite truthful about it and give the best knowledge they have. Um, and Microsoft have used these quite effectively. They used it around project controls and were actually able to get far more accurate information about the state of projects by doing this rather than relying on the formal project control system. Microsoft have also used um, games, so computer games, as a way of motivating staff to do things. And instead of using targets and formal structures and tasking people to do things, they put it in the context of a game as a way particularly of engaging younger people and getting them to do things. Again, maybe some, it may sound a bit left field, but you know, who knows, particularly with younger people, maybe there will be new ways of engaging and thinking about these things. But as we've said throughout the presentation, it isn't, of course, just about the possibility. So I could go on forever about the possibilities and the excitement. It is about how we integrate those into the organisation, how we understand them as people or how we react to them as people, and how we think about some of this broader social and institutional context and what the barriers might be to actually maximising the impact. And so with that, I'm going to hand back to Robert. Thank you. So you know you're in the home straight now. You can be um, uh, thinking of your questions, uh, but what I'll do is I'll just um, anticipate some and try and um, answer them. Uh, talking here about obstacles to the, um, the path that we've laid out here, and as you see from this image, I'm saying that actually the obstacles might not be as great as we think they are. I'm sure we can find them if we run towards that and decide not to jump, but um, we can go around the side or um, avoid it. But let me just put out some of the, the, um, the uh, reasons people might have. As ever, there's four things. First of all, uh, we could just go back to this point. There's limited changes in practice for what most people do, what most organisations do. Um, I would say, though, that that's, that's interesting in itself as a research topic because understanding why things don't change when the possibilities are there seems to me just as, just as interesting. Um, you could say that actually, well, the issues that um, determine whether there is radical change or not, uh, Kirsten talked about this local context, you can say they all sound very practical, and where practical is a sort of dismissive phrase, I would say, well, if we're saying it's practical, it's probably that we just don't have knowledge of an area of theory which would help us to understand it, you know, so we dismiss things which aren't in our scope of theory and knowledge as practical, but for somebody else, uh, they might well have um, theory, knowledge which they can bring to bear, so always wary of saying that they're just practical problems. Third problem might be... Um, Actually, that there's, there's just a lack of an existing literature to build on, and it doesn't fit into the academic incentive structure that there is. And I, I have no answer to this. I know that, uh, that there are issues there if you can't be making um, incremental improvements to a body of existing literature in a way that's recognised 
I appreciate the problem. Uh, it's the sort of thing which uh, drives people in um, uh, professional bodies and business slightly mad, though, to say our incentive structures and the way that academic knowledge is built means that actually there's not a lot to build on here or it's not very highly valued and so it's quite difficult. So I just have to kind of hand that back as a problem. Um, it's not the sort of thing which uh, oh, it's a, um, a business or an entrepreneur would ever see as, um, as a... Uh, as a barrier, they'd actually see it as a fantastic opportunity um, to um, go into some white space. But finally, it might be said, well, actually, you just can't get access. Um, and that's, I know, a traditional problem with what might be seen as more business-oriented research, that it's hard to get access. Well, yes and no. I mean, the very topic that we're talking about means that we are talking about a lot of information which is available and actually the skills of the academic community in being able to um, analyse that data and themselves use technology to analyse it, I think opens up great new uh, possibilities. So the sort of answer that it's difficult to find out um, what's going on I don't quite buy person as well referred to. Yeah, just the ability to go and talk to people in different internet companies and you can observe the, uh, observe the differences. So if there are some uh, next steps. Um, apart from questions, um, the immediate next steps, but for when you're um, back in the workplace after the delights of the day trip today, a um, few things. First of all, it'd be really good to reflect upon what we do know from the uh, existing literature, and Kirsten talked about the, ex the substantial literature about uh, ERP systems. Secondly, to really uh, think about local contexts in terms of everything, that anything that you might be doing, whether it's in um, practice, or whether it's in research work you're, you're doing, to think about not only the technological aspects but also the local context. And what is there here that's likely to make this work or not work? Analyse those other social contextual factors. And that then leads you to a third thing, which is the think, thinking about the range of skills that will be needed to answer those broader questions and the, uh, the skills that might already have, which can be uh, deployed in new ways or the new people that might need to partner with. And I wouldn't rule out thinking that there are uh, huge new areas for both uh, accountants and the academic community to get involved here. There's a very interesting uh, interview um, between uh, um, Bob Kaplan and the guy who was then head of the Institute of Management Council in the US back in 2008 talking about the new sorts of skills which uh, the academic community should be equipping uh, the, uh, their students with in order for them to become really um, useful masters of, um, of their destiny in the new digital era. So uh, it's going to be often more technical skills that people really need to be able to use the information, whether it's in modelling or um, econometrics, statistics. Real techniques needed because the basic problems of gathering information are maybe uh, less. It's what can you do with it and how can you analyse the quality of it and make uh, use of it. 
And finally, and here I address this to myself as much as to anyone else, uh, we do also need to um, uh, ourselves engage with the technology, not have uh, a kind of separate world of the kind of consumer world that we all operate in and kind of really um, make much more progress as consumers and then in our kind of business life or in our everyday life kind of do things in a more conventional way, actually think of some of the, the possibilities so that we um, uh, perhaps are a little bit... Um, uh, more like um, uh, the uh, David Hockney type uh, rather than somebody who'd say, well, I'll, um, I'll carry on being uh, a great traditional painter uh, but I'll, and I'll do some other stuff in my leisure time. And it is quite interesting, if I go back to this contrast um, between the accounting community seeming really at the forefront when you look at what they were doing in the 60s and people in a way resenting that because they kind of, it was their domain, got it in control and everyone said well it's, it's the accountants who look at, know about EDP. Um, 60s, what are we going to do in the 2010s? David Hockney came to prominence I think in the 60s but is still doing stuff in the 20. 20 teens, or whatever we call this current decade that we're, um, we're enjoying. So on uh, that note, uh, let me uh, invite Kirsten back up here. We'll probably sit down over there so that at least people on this side of the room can still see us and be open to um, questions. And there's about a quarter of an hour to go. Or maybe Michael's going to tell us that that's not the way it is. That's fine. We'll sit here then. So thank you very much. Okay, where are we? Questions? One, two. One, two, one. <laughs> Go on. Hi, I'm uh, Ian Herbert from Loughborough University. And just an interesting thing on uh, the spreadsheets that you mentioned earlier. Uh, when I go out to see our placement students in industry, um, which is technically the third year of their degree, I'm sort of saying to them, you know, what have you learnt at university that is applicable in the real world? And there's blank looks, and then eventually they say, oh, spreadsheets, learn <laughs> spreadsheets. And I say, yeah, and what are you doing at work? Oh, I'm doing spreadsheets sort of thing. And, and so there seems to be a real good fit between education and practice. But when you go and talk to uh, CFOs and CEOs, and uh, you're talking about uh, finance people and the, the problems of finance, um, they say, everybody's just obsessed with these spreadsheets. And every time I hear someone say, we'll set up a new spreadsheet for this, I just know the ERP system has failed. And what I want you guys at the university to teach them is how to interrogate ERP systems, how to use data analytics in a sophisticated way with uh, data warehousing and stuff like that, the interrogation techniques. But, and, and that's okay, maybe we're um, out of touch and out of date, but the problem is there is such an inertia towards teaching spreadsheets, which seems to start when uh, people are in junior schools nowadays, that uh, I'm not sure uh, it's really going to be fixed anytime soon, but I see it as a big problem, so uh, any thoughts on that? Bit of a long question, I apologise. 
I think we recognize that spreadsheets do seem to be, continue to be a very dominant in organizations and can be seen as quite a barrier to actually people using some of these systems in a more effective way. Um, so, I mean, we've tried to get to the bottom a little bit and understand why that may be. I think you make some really good points there. I think the, the advantage of spreadsheets is they're so flexible and people can do exactly what they want to do with them. And I think they find, move, people often find moving into a more structured system a very sort of a bit of a painful transition and they like that degree of flexibility and able to do whatever they want. But I think it's, I think it is quite a big challenge to try and get people off spreadsheets and using some of these more sophisticated systems until we can get to the bottom of that. I think it will be quite hard to make um, a lot of progress. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think it's a um, uh, very good point. It was something which actually it was highlighted in a supplement in the FT yesterday, which we didn't organise to coincide with this, um, this uh, talk, but it was about the relationship between um, IT and um, uh, accounting, and actually a, a huge expression of frustration as to how uh, finance people were actually um, you know, hugely irritating organisationally because of this obsession with spreadsheets that we'll have our information which we know is kind of accurate and they don't because where's the information for their spreadsheets what's the quality of the control how's it being tested by dialogue with the rest of the organisation and that's, that's almost you know, quite sad in that it means that the, um, uh, the accounting professionals risk becoming these rather kind of um, strange cult in the corner who are doing their own thing and that's, that's, that's precisely if you go back to that framework for the uh, finance um, uh, function, that's precisely what they shouldn't be doing uh, you would expect that they'd be actually using their um, concern with quality to actually say I've been trying to use this information from the systems that everyone else is using and it doesn't work so we've got to get to the bottom of it so um, we, look, we, we need you know, to think about that, I think, throughout the educational approach to, to um, uh, uh, accounting professionals. So I think it's a, it's a pretty profound point about um, marginalisation. In fact, I would have incorporated it in what we said if I'd, um, if I'd only um, reflected on, the, uh, on this a bit more. So thank you. Well, there's, there's an opportunity. Um, you've been told, you know, spreadsheets. What's next after spreadsheets? And uh, clearly there will be a great opportunity for somebody to find something next after spreadsheets. And perhaps that will be a contribution some of you can make. Okay, uh, where are we? Um, hi. Um, Happy Raman from the uh, aforementioned Shell. Right. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> Uh, just coming back to the, uh, initially uh, to the point that Ian's just made, I completely agree with Kirsten around um, the flexibility that spreadsheets offer. I mean, we're going through the largest installation of, of uh, SAP, we call it GSAP, Global SAP, and we find the inflexibility, increasing inflexibility of the system and the time to turn around change requests, just behaviorally across the organization outside finance, drives the demand for spreadsheets and pivot tables. People want the information. They want to be able to use it quickly and not waiting for a system to time out. Anyway, that wasn't my question. <laughs> right. um, going back to the, the gap between um, practice and performance uh, that, Robert, the Robert, that you mentioned, could, could you talk about any practical examples where you see um, organizations who are closer to the promise and what are some of those key attributes in terms of prevailing best practice? Um, 
That's a good question that I haven't got um, a great answer to, but um, in order to um, escape from it, I say that that would be precisely the, the kind of um, uh, area where research is, is useful. And I think, you know, Kirsten made a transition from the kind of overall conclusions of research to then looking in individual case studies at, at what people had actually done to differentiate, because in that overall position there's huge diversity of practice. So I think, I think um, uh, in a way, that's, that's, that's the good agenda for research, seeing what, what makes the difference. I don't think that in that survey that I was quoting from, there was actually um, um, a lot of specifics, because it was just aggregate survey results. So that won't give you the uh, insights, but it would be great to be able to um, look at the 31% who thought that they were um, uh, pretty good in this um, and see what's going on. So I think it's down to a kind of different sort of research agenda. David Johnson, um, uh, Diamond Dental Manufacturing. Um, by all means, when you've heard my question, defer it to the panel uh, this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was busy studying that exciting first slide you put up, um, uh, counting all the lights, oh, yes. uh, of which there were a vast number, when unfortunately the slide went. Um, the, uh, uh, are you an accountant? I, <coughs> I, 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 well, of course. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, the, the, I found the presentation scary, uh, scary because of the approach that was being taken. Uh, yes, the information is very interesting, uh, and analyzing more information with more technology is very interesting. But you started by saying that accounting was about information, whereas I believe accounting is about control for which trusted information as an essential requirement. Um, the trusted information is the problem, uh, because if we go along the lines we are talking about here of uh, improved IT, using it within the finance function, without essentially that control, we will end up with not the driverless car, but the, uh, but the accountantless business. Business will not need accountants when they can let the technology do it for them. What I do feel is that the accountants and, and in a sense, the research um, element of accounting has uh, left the field of control completely untouched. I do not think accountants are in control of IT. The evidence, if you like, is the major failures we've had within the banking system, uh, the brokerage system, um, uh, power, power supply systems. And uh, I reflected on that first slide and thinking, it is not the accountant who will get blamed when the lights go out, but the control system will have allowed it to happen. There you go. That, um, <laughs> that sounds like something which is a um, um, contribution of many parts which um, uh, could address bit by bit, or we wait for this afternoon. I don't think I don't think it's an it's an either or. I, I would say that um, you know, and it's it's it, it would be reflected in that uh, framework that we have for thinking about the finance function that you know information uh, underpins that. I don't information has a role in in control. Um, I, I'm not quite sure there's there's control without underlying information, and that all that you need um, accountants to be um, doing control uh, work. I think it's the linkage between the, the two um, that's, that's important. So I, I, would, I would hate to um, characterize what um, professional accountants do as being purely being controllers. 
I think that's one of the things that they're very good at and can apply their skills to, but there's many uh, other things that they can support. So it's part of a, a broader family. It would seem to me to be just like saying that um, accountants are just auditors. I don't think that's the case. We've got a conception of a very broadly based accounting profession, which through the quality of the people um, has uh, got into very good positions in a lot of areas of activity in business, and I think that's great. I wouldn't want to become uh, a executive director at an institute which was purely about control, but I'd love to make sure that we keep um, the engagement of communities who are really interested in control, just as we've got communities who are really interested in IT and corporate finance and auditing and management. Okay, thank you. One last question. Good morning, Simon Priest, Ministry of Defence. Um, my question relates to behavioural change and impact of capital outlay in terms of technology. Um, for example, travelling here this morning, I noticed a variety of commuters coming into London carrying a variety of new gadgets. <laughs> Computers have changed dramatically. Um, the information on them is such that one has to keep changing to keep up to date. Um, one finds that one has to spend a lot of money buying different types of technology just to stand still. Henceforth, the information we're getting is the information overload. And, and the question there really relates to um, impacting human behaviour. Can human behaviour and can people really keep up with all these changes that one finds oneself uh, facing? On the other hand, can one keep up financially having to keep paying up for the latest developments in technology? Thank you. Do you want a yes or no answer to that, or Kirsten to be a little bit more textured in her in her um, in, in an answer? I, mean, I, th I think there are very interesting questions there about the speed of change and how we can cope with that. I think, I mean, I don't know the question of different generations and the, the way that they use technology. And I know that there was all the stuff about Generation X and Y and different ways of thinking, and that's not necessarily the case. But I think there are interesting challenges around how different generations, for example, multitask and, and do things in different ways because they're just so used to having all these different gadgets. And I, I, I think, but certainly the question of information overload is a, is a big one. And I think when you look at the amount of data that's, so that's, that's increasing, it's something that we have to um, understand better how we can cope with that and find ways that we don't get overloaded and we can find those little gems that are useful without being overloaded by all the, all the dross, as it were. All right, one last question. Uh, these are the easy questions. The more difficult ones, you can talk to them at lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Claire Butler from Newcastle University. And I'd like to know, how can we encourage people with technology to take risks? Maybe you could just, just expand on that. Because I think that... People, people are very driven to always look back with information, and mm -hmm. I think people hark back to what they know. Yes. And it, I, I'm um, completely in agreement that what we need to do is to set people free mm -hmm. to do something different, to try something. And how do you, do you think that in terms of information technology, because it is typically look into the past, which has this connotation of of being controlled and of being something that's, that we can see and something that we experience, so therefore it's something that we feel happy with. Okay. How, how can we get people to go off that cliff? 
Yeah, I think pass this over to um, Kirsten, having given her a little longer to think about it. But um, I think I think there was quite um, quite a number of hints about that in what Kirsten said. Because if you if you pick up this idea of um, uh, pattern recognition, and actually, you know, rather than see uh, you know historical information, that's kind of sort of boring. What we need to do is 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 just think about the future. Actually, it's probably not recognising that a, a lot of a lot of what passes for um, sort of uh, really uh, imaginative um, skills or judgment um, ability to make judgments in new situations is actually based upon lots of experience um, and pattern recognition. And actually, to the extent that that IT can just give us far wider range of data. Um, from which to recognise patterns, um, I think I think gives a, gives a way of making the the, the link. Um, so I, I I don't I don't quite buy the idea that you know well if we're looking at information it's about the past and somehow that's boring because that if we can if we can uh, sort of mine that uh, experience better and we use the technology to do that we can actually be a lot. Um, a lot uh, more imaginative and wiser in thinking about the future and future scenarios. Um. Yeah, and I think if you look at the way, for example, that um, internet companies innovate, they do it in a very, it's much more experimental way of doing it. It's not a long thought out process of, well, let's try this and let's test it out. They just get out there, they try things, they, they see the patterns, they look at what happens, they change it, they do something else. It's a very sort of fast and experimental approach to sort of product development, which as Robert says, are building on all this information and the, the way they can mine patterns from how people react to this change and that change, um, which uh, I think is very interesting and, and but quite challenging possibly to traditional ways of thinking about product development and how we how we approve that and how we move that forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to introduce our next speaker, who's going to talk about the diversity of culture and environmental dynamics as key challenges for performance measurement systems in global firms. Our speaker is Professor Bisbee. I'm sure I've got that wrong. <laughs> no, you heard it right. He's sad. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I've been told off. Um, I'm often told off. Uh, it comes from Isad uh, in Barcelona, and we are very grateful for him to come this morning. Presumably the weather in Barcelona is better than here. Thank you. Good morning. <clears throat> and thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you all. Thank you to LSE for the invitation the opportunity to be here. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. It was raining in Barcelona yesterday when I left, so it's a pleasure to be in, in sunny London. <laughs> um, what I would like to do in the next minutes is to share with you some thoughts about uh, what I see as two main challenges faced by global firms regarding their performance measurement systems. One has to do with managing diversity. The other one has to do with coping with uh, dynamism or with increased dynamism. 
Um, let me start by um, taking a look, let's say, at the big pictures. We all know that globalization is out there. Globalization is in here. We all know that uh, multinational companies are, are, are central agents of that globalization. But in being these central agents, um, multinational companies face a number of challenges. Um, they face um, increasing complexity. Uh, the number of nodes to interconnect in multinational corporations is, uh, has exploded. Okay? And this increases coordination needs. This has many, many implications. Implications for IT, as we have just seen. Implications for the organizational design. I'm not getting into those today, but these are very important. The second challenge has to do with um, the need to balance global integration with local responsiveness. Um, uh, this has several aspects. One of them um, is the dilemma between centralization and decentralization. Should we uh, centralize decision making? Should we bet for strong country managers? Um, another one has to do with the convergence divergence in management practices. Should we bet for standardized management practices uh, within those corporations or should we allow for local adaptation? Um, globalization also leads to an increase in systemic risk. Um, governance mechanisms have now to deal with higher stakes in political risk, in economic risk. And another implication of globalization is that markets have become more fragmented, more unfamiliar, and therefore there is more volatility and more dynamism. Um, I will focus on these two challenges. Um, so that what I want to talk about is about these two themes. One is whether or to what extent performance measurement systems in multinationals are converging to homogeneous sets of practices or not. The other one is whether new generations performance measurement systems, and by these I mean strategic performance measurement systems such as balanced scorecards or performance prisms, actually help uh, multinationals to better cope with this increased dynamism. Uh, we often hear, we often think that there is a tendency, regarding the first theme here, there's a tendency for the same practices to extend everywhere so that firms and subunits within firms are becoming similar with respect to their managerial systems. And um, supporting this idea, uh, there are a number of drivers, a number of pressures. By the way, this uh, slide is taken from Grandman and Luca. It's a Grandman and Luca also appeared in the first presentation. It's not the same reference paper, but uh, in any case, a paper by them. Uh, um, so a first set of pressures that lead to uh, convergence of performance measurement systems uh, are um, economic pressures. Economic pressures related to the search for efficiency. Uh, there are global economic trends um, so that many firms face similar concerns. If, for example, all firms, if there is a global trend to an increase of overheads in our cost structure, we shouldn't be surprised, for example, that ABC systems spread. If there is a global economic trend toward an importance of intangible assets, we shouldn't be surprised that there is a factor driving, this is a factor driving convergence that calls for, uh, for example, for the spread of the use of uh, non-financial metrics. Uh, markets globalize, companies rely on global value chains and integrated operations, and therefore uh, full uh, compatibility is needed. And this is another factor, another factor that promotes 
the standardization of practices. And as mentioned before, advanced information technologies out there, ERP systems, and so on. And those systems, apart, uh, apart from um, making integration and coordination possible, in themselves, they um, promote standardization, they, they, they promote certain uh, reporting formats to be produced, certain, certain standard data collection procedures, and so on. Now, in addition to these economic pressures, there are some other more institutional pressures. For example, for example, coercive pressures coming from international regulation, let's say IFRS, or disclosure, other disclosure requirements, or coming from uh, within the organization as headquarters force their subsidiaries to um, uh, adopt uh, similar performance measurement systems. On the normative side, there are some other pressures favoring convergence. Um, for example, the education and the professionalization of managers, let's say management accountants, um, create um, similarity patterns. Uh, in education, we are exposed to materials which are globally used. We belong to networks which end up sending us messages and advices about what can be done, what should be done, what should not be done, and out of this, it comes similarity. And finally, there are mimetic processes oops, by which firms or subunits tend to imitate others when they perceive something as a good practice. So we have benchmarking, we have um, transfer of best practices going on. And apart from this, in these mimetic processes, we also have fat and fashion processes going on. So uh, proponents of these um, convergence uh, beef would say that all these convergence pressures are very active and that uh, as it comes to performance measurement practices, there are no strong divergence forces that make us deviate from this. So out of this, we have convergence progressive standardization, this, this uh, this uh, position would claim both across firms, and an example of that would be the uh, adoption of uh, budget systems and balance scorecards in many uh, Chinese state-owned enterprises in the last decade, as well as standardization within firm. Uh, G, uh, which is a firm well known for knowing, uh, for uh, I'm sorry, growing through acquisitions, has managed to have a system that permeates all the subsidiaries. The G, the G way, this culture based on um, on this number-oriented culture, let's say. So I, I definitely agree that there are strong convergence pressures, um, but I think that we should also mm, take into account that while these pressures are there, there are also some divergence pressures which are active, uh, are there, and will stay there for a while, and that, in fact, serve a purpose. So that the evolution of, of management practices, in fact, is not purely convergence, but comes from an interplay from these convergence and these uh, divergence pressures. So uh, keeping in mind, So keeping in mind this idea that there are some uh, both economic and institutional divergence pressures that are active, will stay there for a while, and they serve a purpose, I will go over this uh, in, the, in the coming slides. Uh, again, keeping in mind all the time, I have to go this, this way, all the time that we, we have patterns of convergence divergence both across companies and intra-companies, I will look first at the 
institutional factors rather than divergence to the ones here at the bottom. And here, uh, I'll talk about home country effects, the interplay between home country and host country effects. And I will take a look also at some very significant forces that shape this interplay, the intracompany isomorphism, that is, forces coming within from within the company that uh, promote standardization versus the force of the local views which counteract this uh, intracompany isomorphism. So, um, regarding the home country effects, and this is about conversions, or I'm sorry, about divergence uh, across companies. Uh, my point here is that despite apparent convergence, a specific home country effects can still be traced. That what happens to a multinational in its home country has a very strong imprint on what happens throughout the corporation, including the subsidiaries outside that country. And we can look at these home country effects in, in, in different places. Uh, I will take a look at, home, uh, at the impact of home country business systems and at the impact of national culture. Regarding home country business systems, <coughs> Uh, Whitney, for example, has defined three types of firms. He defines opportunistic firms as, as those who operate in environments where there is a lack of stable institutions or where institutions are very weak. He talks about cooperative hierarchies, which are firms that operate in environments when there is a number of very strong institutions, be they uh, financial institutions, uh, um, labor unions, uh, government agencies and so on, that encourage collaboration and coordination between actors. Think about Japan or think about Finland, for example. And isolated hierarchies instead operate in arm length environments where there is a high separation between institutions and that the links, the relationships between the actors uh, is um, achieved through formal procedures. Now the point, I'm not getting over all this framework, but the point here is that depending on the institutional context back home and the headquarters, firm internationalize one way or the other. For example, firms, in, uh, these opportunistic firms tend to internationalize, uh, taking a very short-term approach, um, getting into foreign direct investments which are very close geographically to home or only affecting routine activities, whereas cooperative hierarchies tend to uh, be slow movers, they take a long-term approach, and they go abroad only after long-term thinking. This is what Siemens or Bayer would have done. Okay? So the point is, depending on the institutional context, the firms international at headquarters, firms internationalize one way or the other, and this has implications at the same time for the way firms approach management control systems and performance measurement systems. Again, I'm not getting all over this, but in uh, those firms will uh, rely primarily on direct supervision, whereas cooperative hierarchies, what they will do is they will try to reproduce the systems at home in the foreign countries so that they can detect the, the relevant networks, the relevant strategic alliances there, and so on. Okay? So the point here is, um, even if we go beyond witness uh, classification, that um, the type of the home domestic business system shapes the way firms internationalize and this shapes in turn the way uh, they design uh, performance measurement systems. A second uh, home country fact that helps to explain why PMS may be different across uh, multinationals is national culture. 
A, a very commonly used framework of national cultures is Hofstede's, which identifies five major, five major dimensions that uh, define culture. One is power distance, that's the extent to which hierarchical or, or order is taken for granted or not. Another one is uncertainty avoidance, that is um, whether people or employees feel comfortable or uncomfortable when they face unstructured and, um, and uh, ambiguous situations. Individualism versus collectivism, masculinity versus femininity, uh, that's a, a weird way to say preference for achievement versus preference for affiliation, and long-term versus short-term orientation. So uh, one can describe the national culture of a given country according to these five attributes. I took this from uh, Beards Hofstede's uh, website. If you have curiosity for a given country, you can go there and you'll find this. But what's important for uh, the, the point I'm making here is that um, the headquarters national culture has implications for the way the corporation approaches uh, performance measurement systems um, and management control in general. This is the long list. Just let me pick up one per, per trade. If uh, we have, um, or in countries where we have high power distances, we can expect more frequent use of discretionary bonuses without raising any concern for let's say, uh, uh, unfairness or bias, and instead lesser use of formula-based um, bonuses, uh, at least compared to lower, low power distance countries. If you have uh, high uncertainty avoidance, the tendency will have to control by actions. Has manager X done the actions he was expected to do? Instead of controlled by results, that is, has manager Y achieved the outcomes? Uh, she was expected to obtain. Of course, if you are in, indiv in individualist culture, metrics will tend to be uh, individual performance based and rewards will also be so. Um, uh, it's knowledge that here, but in a masculine culture, you can expect relative performance evaluation to be more uh, important, more widespread. And obviously, long-term versus short-term has an implication for both the frequency of reporting and the contents of the, of the metrics. So again, the point is that uh, multinational firms and the way they approach performance measurement systems are heavily rooted in their national culture, in the headquarters, in the headquarters national culture. Just as an example, um, the, um, take Denmark. Uh, Denmark's national culture is featured as low power distance and individualistic. Uh, Novo Nordisk is a um, uh, Danish-based uh, uh, healthcare company. You may know uh, they are world leaders in uh, diabetes care. Uh, they have a subsidiary in Mexico, in Mexico City. And when you go there, what you find is that the nation, the Danish national culture, has heavily permeated that subsidiary. Um, they have a high level of participation in target setting. Uh, they have uh, productivity bonuses given to all employees, regardless of their hierarchical uh, or of any hierarchical distinction. And this is far more pronounced than what you would expect in the Mexican environment. So this is far more pronounced than what you would find in subsidiaries from um, companies with headquarters in the US or in other countries or in Mexico itself. So uh, I take that as an example that the Danish national culture plays a significant role in shaping the PMS in that Mexican subsidiary, which is different uh, compared with what would happen in other Mexican subsidiaries. So I guess the point here is that there is variation, divergence in PMS practices that comes 
from the home country factors. That, that's my first point. Um, however, these variations in patterns of uh, internationalization and in PMS practices are linked, only, uh, are linked not only to the home country factor, but also to the characteristics of the uh, host environments. There is an interplay between home and host countries, and again, we can relate this to business systems or to culture, and we, we could also find other factors for sure. Uh, regarding business systems, again, I'm not going over this very complex chart here, um, <clears throat> but the point is just to illustrate that as firms go global, firms that adapt practices, and this may differ from country to country in different subsidiaries. The columns here are the host countries, the host business environments. And if, for example, we just take the uh, row of these isolated hierarchies, that's the, the headquarter, what happens when these guys go to one of these environments? What you would see here is that when they go to a collaborative or to an arm's length environment, they do what they, in fact, they like to do which is manage at a distance, allow for a high degree of adaptation, and as long as uh, financial and other, and other targets are met, uh, that's fine. However, when these firms go to a particularistic environment where institutions are very weak, let's say Ecuador, just to pick up a country, then change their behavior. Okay? And in that case, they resort to a high direct control, high direct parental control over that subsidiary. Okay? So the point here, again, is that, I'm not getting into the, the full table, that the, the way firms internationalize and the features of performance measurement systems are shaped by the institutional environments of the host country, of the home country, and since these may differ across the companies you pick, okay, you, may, you, you should expect variation. Now, the second source of variation that has to do with interplay between home and host has to do with culture. Um, and with cultural distance. Um, it makes sense that when cultural distance is low, it is when the convergence proposition works better, okay? and that practices get more easily standardized. Um, following the same reasoning, the higher the cultural distance is, the more the company is likely to need to adapt practices. Okay? There is a, a very nice study by Cho and colleagues that looks at uh, the investments of Japanese companies and US companies in Taiwan. And what they find is that U.S. companies f uh, adapted far more the PMS practices to the local environment than Japanese firms did. And one of the arguments for this happening is that the cultural distance between the Taiwanese companies and the U.S. companies was far higher than the one with the Japanese companies. Okay? So the, the idea is the higher the cultural distance is, the more the company will need to adapt the practices. Um, now, of course, this uh, is complicated by many factors. If you have expatriates, if you have a lot of cross-country rotation and so on, uh, these, all these elements may, may mitigate the problems, let's say, of cultural distance. 
In fact, this gets even more complicated, as I mentioned before, because there are de deliberate moves taken at the headquarter level and deliberate moves taken at the local level, which make this even more complicated. And here comes the intercorporate isomorphism thing, which is a funny word to express that there are deliberate pressures for standardization within the firm coming from within the firm. Um, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with this picture. No? Who are these guys? That's Christopher Columbus. We in Spain are used since we are kids to this picture. This is Columbus and team arriving to the new world. Okay? Um, when, when Spanish multinationals um, de deployed in Latin America in the 90s, there was a wave of foreign direct investment in the 90s um, uh, of Spanish companies in Latin America. Some of them uh, had the old, uh, an old conquistadores motto in mind, which is, uh, as one top manager of one of the big banks in Spain, uh, I guess you know who the bank is, um, one said that we went there, we went to Latin America in the 90s with the cross and the sword. The sword is down here. Okay. Uh, what does that the cross and the sword means? It means uh, first we'll try to convince them to use common standard management practices. Uh, if they are not convinced, then we will resort to the sword. Okay. The cross and the sword is, 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 comes from the 16. I think it's 15th or 16th century. Now, in, 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 new, in modern terms, this is what we call normative pressures. Okay? That's the cross. And coercive pressures. That's the sword. Okay? So uh, firms have these intercorporate isomorphism push. Uh, and apart from these coercive pressures and normative pressures, there are also imitation processes within the firm. So all this creates a lot of again, push within the firm uh, in favor of uh, standardization. However, however, we need to keep in mind that, um, oops, I'm sorry, that even though this intercorporate isomorphism may balance out the problems of cultural distance, may beat the cultural distance issue, uh, local units are not simple passive players. Okay? They, uh, they play a role. They play politics. Maybe subtle, but they play, they play politics. They play resistance. Uh, they, may, mm, they may fail to cooperate. They may produce delays. They may change the scope of the initial projects. They may mm, apparently implement, okay, just to, have, to create the impression that the demands for compliance from headquarters have been fulfilled, but fail to, interna to uh, internalize. I mean, we all know stories of, Japan, of subsidiaries of Japanese companies who ha were supposed to put in practice quality um, initiatives that, yes, they were implemented, but didn't have a real impact on the way the firm was working. Okay? Um, so I'll, I'll try to be a little more conclusive on this in the coming slides, but I guess the message at this point is that when we look at, at interfirm, there is a tension between adaptation to local and standardization, which creates um, serious tensions, tensions that come from this 
complex game of counter forces and that it's far, far more complicated than what might be suggested by the initial convergence idea, which was sort of a happy world, a happy and easy world, and it's not that happy and easy like that. So the, the, the way this tension is addressed, um, it's rather unstable, depends on many factors. Um, I will focus on the latest, the, uh, the, the specific practice we're talking about. Um, so looking at practice separately, what one finds is that practices on the left side of this light tend to be uh, primarily driven by internal consistency, and therefore they, they tend to resemble the parents' practices. Uh, the choice of baseline primarily financial measures in performance evaluations, the length of targeting horizon, whether targets are stretched or not, the emphasis put on meeting these targets, the frequency of comparing targets to performance, the frequency of revising targets, and whether performance-based compensation is used for managers or not. Not the type, but whether yes or no. Okay, this predominantly resembles the parent. Whereas, here on the right, we have practices where there is more room for departing from the parent and resembling local practices or having local adaptation. The choice of often additional financial and non-financial measures in performance evaluation, <coughs> whether the PMS uh, are used for facilitation of information exchanges learning or not, the specific methods used to determine performance-based compensations for managers, so how bonuses are specifically calculated, the benefits, the status symbols, and so on, and whether performance-based compensations are used for non-managerial employees. So even though it's a little bit of generalizing, but what we might say is that uh, as long we are talking about decision-facilitating issues, that is, attention-directing, um, planning, um, taking corrective actions, we would be on that side. As we move into more assessment compensation issues, uh, more on the HR side, let's say, we, are, we, we start opening room for this uh, adaptation and resemblance to local practice. So um, the closer we get to goal congruence, uh, in HR aspects here to the left, the more there is room for adaptation. However, however, this does not mean there are general guiding principles. The HR guys, the human resources guys, have, long, have had a long battle between the so-called universalist positions, that is, there are principles that have universal reach, and the so-called culturalist positions, that is, when you go to Rome, do as the Romans do. Okay? Uh, lately, uh, they, they have matched these, these, these two ideas, and basically what, what they uh, mainstream uh, position in HR claims is that universalism in HR principles is compatible with culturalism at the level of specific practices. In other words, practices are adapted because the effectiveness of the specific practices depends on the local context. Okay? Uh, but, but again, this is not against the idea of some universal guiding principles such as performance-based rewards should be there. On the other side, predominant resemblance to the parent, I mentioned that, that, that here uh, we tend to have standardization. However, this does not mean that there is space for variation. I, I already introduced the idea of space for variation when I mentioned um, issues such as resistance, 
or cultural mismatch. Okay? But uh, apart from that, or, or in addition to that, what I want to emphasize now is that there may be also be uh, economic, rational, efficiency-driven reasons for this local variation. So in other words, <clears throat> even if the local managers do not resist, it's not an issue of resistance, it's not an issue of power battles, the local managers have good knowledge about the local circumstances. They know firsthand what is the specific context. And because of that, again, even if no resistance, local managers may, may accept what is proposed by headquarters, but in fact, they accept it by proposing local variations, which is in fact what makes the system work. So these practice variations may involve additional or different metrics from the ones proposed by headquarters, may involve different definitions of items, different reporting formats, different frequencies, uses of spreadsheets that go in parallel with the, uh, the uh, uh, standard uh, uh, format and so on. Um, there, there's a, a well-known study by Busco and, and, and colleagues uh, where they beautifully report that in the Nestle War case, there was uh, Nestle War is San Pellegrino and many wars uh, uh, we used to have. Uh, there was a process of convergence in place with the spread of a standardized end-to-end -end profitability report system. But the interesting case is that this was in place only for the international brands of Nestle Wars. For the local brands, a local system, a local customized system was still in place and coexisted, and Nestle Wars not knew that, coexisted with this standardized system for the, uh, for the uh, international brands. Okay? So sometimes uh, this local differentiated practice emerge naturally and are openly accepted, as it was the case in Nestle Wars. They may be implicitly tolerated or they may be ignored by head office, they may not even know. So uh, my point is, rather than just having conversions, here we have a tension to be managed. I'm, I'm, I'm going here from the, the uh, bottom to the, to the top. The, yes, the process of globalization leads to a convergence of PMSs, uh, but when applied uh, to local level, uh, we often find some degree of uh, local practice variations, which in fact is needed to make the global system work. So we need to go local in order to make the global work. So in fact, convergence and divergence of PMSs do not represent incompatible perspectives. One helps the other. And this comes, in fact, echoes the initial balance I mentioned. I started saying multinational companies have to balance um, global integration with local responsiveness. Well, this is echoed by this convergence, divergence, which simultaneously exists. Uh, in these multinationals. So the point is that conversions and, the, and divergence of PMS um, practices coexist, and that pretending that one has completely eliminated the other is a sort of an, an oversimplification. Now moving to the second theme, I haven't forgotten the second theme, but I will be shorter on, on, on this one. Uh, I started pointing out that globalization involves higher systemic risk and increased dynamism. Sure, informal mechanisms 
play a very important role when you are in these very volatile environments, but formal performance measurement systems still play a role there. So the question is to what extent these new generations of, of PMS, what I will call SPMS, strategic PMS, balance scorecards and the like, effectively help to manage in these more dynamic environments. Let me stay, step back for a second. Um, for a while, um, uh, balance scorecards and the like were seen as tools for, for strategy implementation. Okay, this is a quote from a SEMA INSEAD report. Balance scorecards are basically tools for strategy implementation. But over time, we have learned that, in fact, balance scorecards uh, also have implications for the way companies formulate strategies. Okay? Firms that use SPMS formulate strategies differently than those that do not use SPMS. And, and why is that? It is because they increase the ability of top executives to acquire and to process relevant information. Uh, managers can share that, and out of this sharing, uh, as a result of that sharing, the strategic agendas are more comprehensive, are more thorough, so that the, the, the let's say the roadmap that uh, is produced in the strategic formulation process has a greater number and, gre and a greater variety of decisions involved. And with this, manager, managers are better equipped to develop proper strategic responses, and this ends up having a good implication for performance. But then the issue is what happens when we in, introduce dynamism here? Uh, one could expect that um, since SPMS helped managers to be more aware of the increased complexities that they face in dynamic environments, um, when using SPMSs, the more dynamic the environment is, the more detailed, the more comprehensive this roadmap that comes from the strategy formulation exercises will be. And that this would end up having an even more positive effect on performance. So what I'm sharing now is, is in fact, is an ongoing project. We have been doing studying a large sample of firms. What, what we find is not this but something quite different. What we find is that SPMSs increase the comprehensiveness of the strategic agendas. How detailed is the roadmap that comes, uh, by detail I mean thorough, comprehensive, the roadmap that comes from the strategic decision processes, regardless of how dynamic the environment is. is as if getting into the SPMS, the balance scorecard exercise, was so fun so exciting that we got into this more thorough and comprehensive output regardless of how dynamic is the environment. Now the issue is that having a very detailed roadmap ends up locking you and in, in very dynamic environments because there is a risk of overcommitment, a risk of ossification. Keep in mind that balance scorecards are quite hierarchical, are quite uh, top-down. So in summary, what, what this is suggesting is that SPMS's exercises, balance scorecard exercises, induce by themselves this higher comprehensiveness of strategic agendas and strategic reformulation processes, but this is independent of how dynamic is the environment. Whereas this may result in an overcommitment, which may be detrimental in dynamic environments. So what this is suggesting, and 
I guess this is directly again something that I read once in one of the Kaplan books, is that uh, the incremental benefits of SPMSs are more likely to be capitalized in stable environments than in dynamic environments, in that in fact in very dynamic environments it may be damaging. Uh, you may have heard about the Handelman Company. Anyone has heard about the Handelman Company? I think they operated in the, here in the UK as well. They, they are a US company. Um, you may have heard of it because it's proudly and extensively uh, mentioned in one of the books by Kaplan and Norton in the Alignment book, 2006, I think. Uh, there are ample references to the Handelman Company. This is a company operating in the, as a distributor of pre-recorded music and videos, um, uh, distributing those to retailers. Uh, so a couple of Norton made a lot of references to this company as, a, as an example of best practice. The way they have designed the balance scorecard, the way they were using balance scorecards. Well, the thing is, as of 2009, this, fir this firm went bankrupt and was dissolved. They were unable to detect the changes in the environment. They were unable to react to changes in the environment. So part of my point here is that um, the overcommitment that they had resulting from the application of the balance scorecard um, um, was not suited to the dynamic environment they were facing in that industry that were suffering dramatic changes at that point. Um, if we move from one case to, let's say, a large sample, uh, these are data that come from a report that they know, Bain and Company, the consulting company produces every two years the management tools and trends report in which they keep track of what's going on with certain popular uh, management tools. Uh, interestingly, for the balance, and they, what they report are large uh, multinational companies. Interestingly, if you look at what happens with the percentage of responses that uh, claim to use balance scorecards, the percentage of those goes, drops significantly from, what, 66, I think, to 45% over these last four years, which have been turbulent years. Uh, it's hard to know why has this happened, uh, but uh, my point is that this may be related to this lack of adequacy of balance scorecards in very dynamic environments. So how to overcome this? How, how could we rethink these balanced scorecards or alike for dynamic environments? One way would be to try to build dynamism into the PMS. So act upon barriers and enablers to make the PMS evolution possible. So invest in training, invest in uh, IT uh, technology, <laughs> have systematic processes in place to, um, to make the evolution of these performance measurement systems possible, rethinking metrics, rethinking maps. But I think that even though this is one way to go, this might be thinking within the box. Notice that one of the characteristics of the balance scorecards is that they tend to have an inner look. They, they look at what happens within the firm. Yes, there is a customer perspective, fine. But that's a very partial view of what's happening outside. It's basically what happens inside. Major shifts in technology, major shifts in the market will not be captured by the uh, original formulation or the classical formulation of the PMS. So maybe one way to go is to try to integrate somehow external perspectives further into, into uh, the balance scorecard. 
Uh, and another way to go, and some companies have done this, Bank of Tokyo, for example, is a well-known example, is to enhance connections between the performance measurement systems and the enterprise risk management practices. Maybe adding an additional perspective for risk, this is what Bank of Tokyo did, or maybe um, deploying the risk considerations for each of the measures or each of the objectives within the balance scorecard. To conclude, um, and regarding the two themes uh, I proposed, uh, multinational companies seek competitive advantage by simultaneously pursuing global integration and local responsiveness. This tension is echoed by this tension between, co between convergence and divergence, convergence and differentiation of performance measurement systems. So there is not only convergence, there is convergence for sure, but there is not only convergence, but there is convergence and divergence which create a tension to be managed. While convergence and uh, divergence or differentiation coexist, we tend to find conversions in practices related to decision facilitating purposes, this attention directing, this taking corrective actions, and so on. Whereas we tend to have um, more adaptation in goal congruence issues more closer to the HR area. And finally, and regarding the second theme, the benefits of these uh, new generation PMSs appears to be easily capitalized in stable environments, but the adequacy under dynamism is definitely under, uh, I would say at a minimum, under doubt. Um, I guess is that these are good news, anyway. These are good news uh, because the, the, the need to rethink how PMSs should, should be in these dynamic environments will keep us busy, will keep researchers busy, will keep practitioners busy, will keep designers busy, will keep users of the system busy. So I guess this promises some, uh, let's say, interesting and exciting times ahead. Uh, this is all I had to say, uh, so I will be happy to take questions or uh, comments. <coughs> Thank you very much. We're making progress, aren't we? Spreadsheets are dangerous. And uh, the balance scorecard is misleading or whatever. So all things considered, we're making progress today. <laughs> Two of your major tools have been thrown away already. Uh, I don't know when anybody on. Uh, right, let's have some questions, please. Uh, where are we? One there, one there. I guess there is a, is there a subset, you know, right, when we talk about performance management systems, uh, about sort of home country versus local, in that, in the way you sort of rank the two or weight the two, and I guess I, I don't know if you have sort of thoughts around it. So do you uh, put sort of 50% local performance versus the group performance? Is there some you know home country culture through the way you remunerate through the shared schemes? It's hard to find percentages on this. Um, what I have in mind is, is a number of studies that when looking at subsidiaries have found that locally developed, autonomous developed performance measurement systems are there. Uh, I, 
I saw Andrea Dossi coming in. There's a study by Andrea Dossi, uh, I think three years or four years ago, which found something like more than 80%, I think, of um, subsidiaries uh, have developed their own uh, local management systems. What is true is that very often this is in addition to what comes from headquarters. But that's interesting anyway. Now, having a percentage of what part of the metrics are locally developed or, or not, I'm, I'm, honestly, I'm not, uh, I'm not aware or I'm, I, I can give you information on that. The, uh, you know, the, the group culture. Oh, because there are very uh, strong coordination needs. Right, and so... So that, that's one point. It's definitely easy to manage. So if we, think, if we think what is the headquarters will, I would bet definitely go and standardize everything. Nothing outside the standardized world. But this is, this is the wish. But a different story is what happens in reality. But definitely, the, the drive to it is uh, you want to uh, improve your efficiency, you want to improve your economies of scale, you want to serve your coordination needs. Please remember to say who you are and where you come from. Yeah, hi. Uh, Gregory Yin from London Housecom Limited. Uh, first question is just a simple one. Uh, I didn't catch the name of the company that used the balance scorecard so well, and then two years later on it went Handelman, bust. Handelman Company. Handelman Company. Handelman. Okay, the second one is not really a question, but just a comment, and, and, and maybe I would like to hear your comment to my comment. I, I mean, as we all, we, we all know, I mean, those of us who practice uh, management accounting, uh, we know that uh, you know when we produce things like balance scorecards or KPIs, there is always an element. Of, I would suggest there is always an element of cheating. You know, people fiddle. You know, figures. So maybe in the case of that example, you know, maybe someone sort of fiddled some figures to show something better, and that's why you went bust. Thank you. Well, I, I think that <coughs> balance scorecards can can be used for many purposes. Uh, and again, we, we can go to the two subsets we had here. On the one hand, you can use the balance scorecard for facilitating decisions without no implications for your reward systems. We just have more information to take better decisions. And another story is using the balance scorecards in order to set targets and reward on the basis of whether these targets are fulfilled or not. And these are two different stories. You can do one without doing the other. If you opt for using, and that's an option you take, you opt for using the balance scorecard for rewarding and compensation purposes, you must know that you are producing incentives for, for people to do some sandbagging, uh, having what we, you, what we used to have as budget slack is now balance scorecard slack. But, but these, these are two different stories. You can perfectly use the balance scorecard for decision facilitating purposes. If everyone is aware that this will not have implications for rewards, the incentives to cheat are, I shouldn't say are gone, but are, are far lower. Where are we? One, two. One in front and one in the middle. Thank you. Do say who you are. Uh, thank you. Uh, Wim Vanderstead at the LSC. 
Uh, looking at your last point here about new generation performance measurement systems, is it, is it actually, I mean, are we sometimes over-attributing success or failure to the performance measurement system or the prior uh, talk information technology, as opposed to actually the fundamental underlying uh, dynamism in the environment? So is it the stable environment that causes it the success, or is it the dynamic environment no, no, that but, causes but, but, but the, the management to be more difficult? No, definitely. If the more dynamic it is, the more difficult things are. My point was, under very high dynamism, having these strategic performance measurement systems may put you in a worse condition than if you didn't have that, because it's locking you more yeah. than you would be locked otherwise. Yeah, I, I think the underlying point is at the end of the day, to, to in a competitive environment, you have to have an unimitable competitive advantage. And uh, I think that's, uh, for any organization, very difficult to sustain because of the competitive mm -hmm. nature. And so in the, in the earlier discussion about information technology, some, it's easy to say there was no change because the change has become the new normal. You know, we're just operating at a different level. But actually there was change from where we were uh, before. So, so it's, it's a constant economic race where you can grant yourself an advantage uh, that will be unimitable for some period, but probably for not too long. And so are we attributing too much, too much weight to, say, a balanced scorecard or to information technology as opposed to the actual uh, competitive environment in which these are operating? I'm not sure whether I follow you. Uh, I don't think that the balanced scorecard is the source of the competitive advantage. No, no, this, this has never... Uh, no, what, what I'm saying is that uh, even if this is something that, that the tool can be imitated by others, it helps you understand better what are your unique competitive advantages. So it's not a competitive advantage in itself. Of course, you have it, but everyone has it. Okay? But uh, it, may it might help you highlight what are your unique competitive now, the point here is, in the context of very high dynamism, you may be overlocked, overcommitted to, uh, to uh, a map of competitive advantages that became old-fashioned and it's not, it's not useful anymore. Okay, where are we there? Thank you. My name is Martin Thomas. Um, my business is Call for Change. I'm a consultant, but I'm also um, heading the practitioner group at uh, the Center for Social and Environmental Accounting Research, CESA. Um, if accounting for social and environmental performance as well as financial performance can be represented by a triple bottom line type approach of some sort and if you call that a sort of balance scorecard if you do I would um, would it be right to assume following your presentation, therefore, and your arguments, that in a world of considerable turbulence, more turbulence than historically we've been accustomed to, um, that it would be wrong for the International Integrated Reporting Committee to be trying to prescribe formulaic reporting procedures 
for integrated reporting. It would be rather better for them to look to a higher level definition, value-driven, if you like, a values, uh, a sort of conceptual framework of values rather than a plan comptable of what you've got to do at every level of every transaction. Um, would that be a reasonable conclusion? Well, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I guess the point is, if you look at performance, uh, be it single line or triple line, you, in the end, are looking at, at lagging indicators, at consequences of what, of what has happened. I think what this is suggesting is, of course, but this was already in the balanced scorecard framework, we should pay attention to leading indicators, not only lagging indicators. But in addition to that, we should pay a lot of attention to risk factors and external environment factors that are not covered enough in this type of framework. Um, so I think an external context-based set context of concepts based. rather than a formulaic set of reporting criteria. Can you do it's the a, it's rest? A tough one, so. <laughs> Can you two do the rest at lunchtime? Okay, sure. Thank you. One last question. My name is uh, George Gross. I've always been on the acquisition side. That is, having to impose the head office uh, principles and procedures all over the world. Have you any experience, or has anybody made any studies, on how the Chinese, Japanese, and Indian firms in firms that they've taken over. Not that come to my mind now. I, I, I can, there are definitely some studies that come to my mind about how, let's say, Western practices have been uh, uh, exported to the, let's say, Chinese environment, but not the other way around that comes to my mind now. Yeah, definitely. I don't know, maybe. No, but I, I think the question was about whether there were studies and research done on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, there are, but of course they're in China. Most of them. I mean, we did have somebody last time telling us a little bit about that. But they clearly are in China, and they're clearly pursuing quite different goals in many ways. So it's very interesting, I think. All right, that I think is a very nice time to um, uh, thank. <laughs>